Awesome. Well, I've got a little stage furniture. I'm taller, obviously, and I need stuff higher. Um, okay, so I don't know about you, but I absolutely love when we're joined together. All the generations in one room, it's such a blessing. Uh, when we were leading worship, it was such an amazing day when everybody gathered older, younger, all together. So I'm, I'm thankful for today. Today is such an amazing day. I'm also thankful uh, to be able to teach. Uh, next week, uh, Jason will be back with us. Uh, but what an honor to be able to teach uh, today. So I'm, I'm grateful uh, for that. My name is Andrew Francis. I, I don't know if, you, if I've met you or not, but how many of you are New Year's resolution people? Raise your hand. You can raise them up high. Don't be, don't be afraid. Raise your hands up high. How many, okay, yeah, I know who my dad is, yes. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so how many of you are New Year's resolution keepers? Yeah, so I, I always say that, like, I'm this balloon, and then there's a string that has to hold me down, and then down here there's this rock of the grumpy people that have to hold the string down and, and the balloon. I tend to dream is what I'm trying to get at. I tend to make lofty goals. And so years ago, I just said, hey, you know, the heck with it. I'm not going to do <laughs> New Year's resolutions. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember so clearly, I, uh, I don't remember what age I was, junior high or so, but I told my parents I wanted to be state champion tennis player. State champion tennis player. The problem is I wasn't very good at tennis. And, and I really had zero desire to put the effort in to become better at tennis. And then one year, I, I, and, and obviously it's official when we post it on Facebook. Uh, yeah, laugh at me now, okay. Uh, I posted on Facebook that I wanted to be fluent in Spanish by the next year. I knew like maybe five phrases in Spanish that I could count, etc. Unrealistic goals. So what I began to do is just every year at New Year's, I just take an assessment and I scale back maybe. And I look for things in my own life where, okay, God, spiritually, how am I doing? New Year's is such a time of, it's like a breath of fresh air. It's really just one day, but it's like a light switch goes off. And this new light switch just breathes fresh air into our lives. And it allows us just to be able to mentally say, okay, 2023 is gone. 2024 is here. What are we going to do differently this year? One word just keeps popping up into my mind, and it was posture, posture, and I just felt God just impress upon me posture, and it led into spiritual posture, what does my spiritual posture look like going into the new year, to be honest though, the conversation of posture goes a little further back, and it's a little funny, because the posture used to be a physical posture conversation, and that led, the physical conversation of posture led into the spiritual conversation. What I mean by that is obviously you can tell I'm 6'8", and I'm in a 5'8 world. Uh, yeah, all you short people, y'all just eat it up. Everything's made for you. Doorways are made for you. Shoes are made for you. Everything's just, like, suited for shorter people. And so when I'm in the car on a long trip, I'm I'm constantly adjusting, I'm constantly moving, and, and I'm having to make sure I'm sitting up correctly or else I have a pounding headache later on and making sure my shoulders are back. And so I feel gimmick 
to, I guess, to a TV gimmick. Have y'all seen the posture corrector? Y'all seen that before? Okay, yeah. If you've put it on, you know what it's all about. It's two straps that go around your shoulders, and then they tighten up in the back. And yes, it does produce posture. Yes, you look like an absolute idiot. Guaranteed, guaranteed. And yes, I posted it on Facebook. So five, six years ago or so, I get this posture corrector. I'm going, you know, I'm going to fix this shoulder stuff. I'm going to fix my neck. I'm going to do this. So I put the posture corrector on, and I brought my shoulders back. I get in the mirror, and I'm going, hey, this is great. Like, I'm feeling great. It's a little uncomfortable, but I'm feeling great. Feeling great. And I'm going, my chest is sticking out kind of weird. (laughs) Kind of walking around like this. And then I go to wash my hands. Now watch this. I have no mobility. My shoulders are back. Hey, that looks great. But then I go to wash my hands and I'm doing this. And I can't bend this. And I'm doing this. And so my family's laughing at me. It's just a great ordeal. But I'm trying to do a shortcut to fix this posture problem that I have. And so the posture corrector went in the posture corrector trash bin. And I moved away from that. But staying in line with the posture correction I moved into the spiritual posture conversation and I just kept reading and reading in God's word about okay what does spiritual posture look like what does it mean for us to have good spiritual posture and I, and I read and I read and I read and God just brought me to Titus why don't you open up your Bibles to Titus we'll be in Titus 2 Titus 2, go ahead and get a head start. We'll read it, and then we'll dive in. It's a little book in the New Testament. It's a letter written from Paul to, as you could guess, Titus. If you're there, I'll start reading. Titus 2, we're in verse 11. As I'm reading through God's Word, I I come to this section of Scripture, and it just hit me. And I read it once, and I was like, wow. Then I read it again, and then I read it again. And I got a buddy who I was texting back and forth with, and he's like, man, you really are digging Titus right now. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it just, it's just so good. It's so good. And so I want to share it with you. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. I'm in the ESV. So here we are. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did that move you like it moved me? Just let that soak in a second. Such good. I want to show you what God uh, taught me out of that whole thing. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not a good writer, so forgive me. You're probably going to have to... And If this is not in a good position, then I can move it back a little bit. But what God revealed to me through this text is a simple thing. God's plan, so I'm going to write this out, 
God's plan, I told you, I'm a bad writer, produces a posture while we oh, I told you. I just gotta make sure I don't erase the whole screen. I'm just gonna do that. While we await, and I'm gonna put this here so all of our P's are together. The promise. Can y'all read that? That's bad. That's really bad. That's really bad. Oh, my promise, so. There, see, there's my Spanish. There, oh, yeah, there's my. <laughs> Don't tell Jason. Don't tell Jason, okay? Okay. God's plan produces a posture while we await the future promise. I'm not really an alliteration guy or a three P's or three T's, but it just fit with this text, and you might have seen it. You might have seen it. We're gonna, I'm going to show you in the text how this unfolds just in these four verses. But before we dive into that, I, I want to give you a little background. I think it's always important when we go to God's Word to understand the context. Like what's happening? What's happening in, in the writing? What, what Paul is going through or what Titus is going through? What's happening in the city and the nation or the island or whatever? In this case, we're in Crete. So Titus got dropped off in Crete. He drew the short straw in this case. Crete is an island. If you were to go to a map and you look at, at Greece, and now I'm backwards, but if you look at Greece and then you go around and there's a bay there and then Turkey is right here, if you were to go straight south of that, you'd run into an island of Crete. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so Titus was sent there. We're in, at the end of Acts. Acts 28 stops and then we're like... Acts 34, maybe, yeah, which is not a book, but we're there somewhere in this story. And so Titus gets dropped off, uh, and who are the people in Crete? Worst of the worst. It was known as the center of immorality, or one of the centers of immorality. And, and how do I even know that? Well, chapter 1, verse 12, go there. Chapter 1, verse 12, just go over. Even one of their own? A prophet of their own said this. He said, Cretans are always, there's a big word there, they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And I love how Paul says this. He says, hey, listen, one of your own guys says this, and it's true. They're bad. They're bad people. We do know in the middle of this all where there is immorality and, you know, just uh, ungodliness, there are some Jews present in Crete. How do, how do I know that? Well, if you go back to Acts 2 at Pentecost, there are Cretans, Cretans sorry, that are there at Pentecost. Three times a year, the Jewish men would have to go back to Jerusalem and offer t uh, temple sacrifices. One of them was Pentecost. And so in Acts 2, we see the Jews from Crete are in uh, Jerusalem there, and they hear the message. They hear their native tongue being spoken at Pentecost in Acts 2. So we have a young man who gets, draws this short straw, gets to go to this island in the middle of immorality, in the middle of all this worldliness and this ungodliness. 
gets to face false gospels and, and gets to face liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons and who wants to sign up? No, right? It's crazy. But if I was to take out the word Crete from that and I was to compare the same thing to the U.S., wouldn't you kind of agree that it's about the same? You see, the world around us is just growing in immorality. It's growing in worldly passions. It's growing in evil. You don't have to go very far to, to see it. If you get on the news or anything, you just see pornography is rampant. Sexual sin, just rampant. And it's hitting younger and younger and younger. Addiction is just taking over. But wouldn't you assume that if we have a letter written by Paul to Titus and this creed in the center of immorality, and then we have us who is in center of immorality as well, wouldn't you think we might buckle up and take note? And I think that's what we should do. Because it means more now. It should. We open our ears to this message and we realize that it has something important to say to each one of us. It's, it's relevant. If you had one thing, like let's say Paul is writing this letter to Titus and he wants to relay one thing to these people, to, or to Titus in this case. Now, remember, we can't just send an email or a text, and so he's got one opportunity to send a letter to Titus. What do you think he focuses on? He, he doesn't focus on, hey, listen, Titus, they're messed up people. You stand on the corner, and you yell at them, and you judge them. He doesn't say that. He, he says a simple message. He calls the people to godliness. It's counter to what you might think. He calls Titus to, to godliness. And how do I know that? Well, just look at the text. Chapter 1, verse 1. The knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Chapter 1, he starts off with leadership and elders in the church, and they must be, guess, godly. Older men, we're just going to hit every age group here. Older men in chapter 2, they must be, can you answer? Godly. Older women, they must be godly. Yeah, y'all got to help me out a little bit. Chapter 2, younger women must be, there we go. Younger men must be, and then in chapter 2 where we're at today, all Christ followers must rid themselves of ungodliness. Now the one thing he says, and it's so clear in this way, is that we are to pursue Godliness. In the middle of a world that is full of immorality, he points the attention to us and says, pursue godliness. Pursue godliness. Let's see how this dives in uh, or plays out into the verses. Let's go there, uh, back to chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, we're in the first part of this, God's plan. God's plan, and this is a beautiful plan. The first part is in verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Two things there. There's a lot. The grace of God in this case is obviously the grace that we receive, but the grace of God is a person. A person here, that grace is the incarnate Jesus who has come in flesh and blood. It's God appearing before men 
laying down his life for those people, bringing salvation for the world, bringing for all people, and bringing grace for those who believe. He was always the Savior. From the beginning of time, he was, is, and will be the Savior. And that's what he wants to remind and to relay to them. When you see patterns, when you see multiple repetition thing, like we just talked about a second ago about this godliness we see throughout, we see another repetitious thing in here where it's this focus on God being Savior. God being Savior. Chapter 1, verse 3, by the command of God our Savior. Chapter 1, verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 10, the doctrine of God our Savior. 2.13, our, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 3.4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. 3.6, Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Six times he reminds that Jesus Christ that God the Father is our savior and what an amazing thing to remember in the midst of immorality the people in Crete were searching for something and ancient literature shows artwork and uh, carvings in stone that reference Zeus and other Greek deities as Savior. They were looking for a Savior somewhere, and then Paul reminds Titus that God is our Savior. God is our Savior. And what good news to take into an ungodly world is that God is our Savior. Six times he does it, and it is so good. The second part of God, uh, God's plan, the first one is that he is our Savior. The second one is in verse 14. Verse 14, it says, He who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You see what we did there? We took it up a notch. It's not just that God saved us, but he redeemed us from all ungodliness. He redeemed us from all worldly things. He purified himself, a people for his own possession. He made us his own. He saved us, and then he brought us. What an amazing message. What an amazing message. You see, God's plan only starts the equation. Next, we have the actual posture, which is where I want to focus our time in today. But it leads to this. God's plan produces a posture. And I want to show you the posture of a believer. Again, there are five verses. And then there are five times after that. It's this repetition. We need to take note of this. Five times after that. So in verse 12, this is the posture of a believer. Verse 12. A believer renounces ungodliness and worldly passions. A believer says no to things that don't honor God. A believer says no to the things that the world lusts after. Two is also in verse 12. We live with self-control. We live with self-control. This is a sound mind. It's like drunk or sober, and he's asking us to live a sober mind, a clear mind. Mind. That's the second one. The third posture of a believer is we live upright. We live with righteousness. 
We do what is right and just. The fourth thing, we live with godly lives. This is also in verse 12. With devotion to God. We do the things that honor God. And then five, he repeats the fifth thing five times throughout the book. I know this is a lot. But in verse 14, he finishes out the posture of a believer. And he says, the posture of a believer, they are zealous for good works. They are zealous for good works. Paul says this five times, and 2.7, be a model for good works. 2.14, that they are zealous for good works, or we just talked about. 3.1, be ready for every good work. 3.8, be careful to devote themselves to good work. Let our people devote themselves to good work in 3.14. He just repeats this, and it's important. It's important. He is saying that God's people have a burning desire for good works. We have a burning desire to act out our faith. You see, from the beginning of time, we were always meant to stand out. We were always meant to stand out. That's why God gave the Old Testament people the covenant. The Old Testament covenant was meant so that, because he, he, knew, if, he knew that they were going to be in captivity, and he knew they were going to be going into the promised land. And as a result, he gave them a structure to abide within in order for them to be godly in the world that they go into, that they would stand out and be different. It's always meant to be that way. Always from the beginning of time, and nothing has changed. Paul focuses the attention on an inward change, and that inward godliness affects the outward world. Are you following that? That inward godliness that God calls us to, it impacts the outer world. Outer world. So let's dissect and let's start building this true gospel. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul starts from the very beginning talking to Christians. He he talks about for the sake of God's elect, the Christians, the believers, and he says so simply right here, he says, and their knowledge of the truth. Their knowledge of the truth. And he goes on, he says, which accords with godliness. Now, see that statement as one, knowledge of the truth and godliness. In the structure of the sentence, they are tied, they are inseparable. Knowledge of the truth is godliness. It's not the other way around. It's a hierarchical position in the text right here, is that knowledge of the truth equals to godliness. Knowledge of the truth is godliness. It's not godliness equals truth. It's truth equals that. And so what is this Knowledge that we're talking about. What is this that we're talking about? So let's begin because I don't know about you, but an area that I've struggled with in my own life is I, I, I stop there. I know that God's saved me. I know that he brought me out of something to something, and maybe you're in the same position. And then once I'm over here, I start just tacking on these things. I start tacking on these rules and commands that I need to live by. And I start holding myself to that. And I'm, I'm holding, I'm, I'm so deep within this, and I'm trying to just hold all this weight up, and it's so hard, and it's so taxing that because I'm operating within 
my own power. And that's how legalism rises up. Would you agree? It's legalistic when I realize that God saved me and elevated me, but then all of a sudden I'm following rules and commands that I've put in place, that I've put in place in order to somehow win him over or to somehow to keep my salvation. But, but ladies and gentlemen, that's not the whole gospel. That's not the whole gospel. Yes, God has saved us, and yes, God has called us to something with the highest of expectations, holiness. He's called us to that. He's saved us and called us to that, but then there's more. Because a false gospel says he's called us, he's saved us, he expects all this of us, and then I work it out with legalism. That's that's false. That's completely false in the gospel because there's a word that I skipped over in the text and I did it purposely. I want to show you this right now is that God saves us, his plan, and then the true posture of a believer is that, yes, I'm called to a higher expectation. But I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this. It's not me taxing and working out my salvation. It's the Lord within me. Yes, high expectations, but I have him within me. And what great songs we sing today. Our God fighting our battles. Such good message. Such good message in this text that we are not alone. Go back to verses 11 and 12. Guys, this is beautiful. It's amazing when you connect all of this. Watch this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for who? All people. But then there's a word that we didn't mention a minute ago. Training. Your text might say instructing. This is ongoing, and it's modifying the subject here that the grace of God is doing the work. The grace of God, Jesus himself, is actually doing this work within me. Yes, to these high expectations. Yes, I play a part, but I'm not alone. The stakes haven't changed. The expectations haven't changed. Nothing has changed. We are still called to the highest of levels but we get there through him and with him. The text talks about training, instruction, and and we know that we are given the Holy Spirit. And it's that very Holy Spirit that enables us to take and keep and continue on this path. We can't stop anywhere on that journey. We can't stop with salvation only because the Bible would argue that if those two things don't exist, if that life doesn't exist, you question whether the salvation actually existed, uh, started to begin with. They all go together. Salvation and then God brings us, like we said, to something. A life. His expectations working through us. That's the complete gospel. Him training us. Him instructing us him working through our lives 
the indwelling of the Holy Spirit empowers us to completely be able to live the life that God has called us to. God still calls us to this holy life. He still calls us to this godly life. He calls us to a life set apart. He calls us to a reverent life, an honorable life. He calls us to good works. He calls us to great works. He calls us to burn in our heart for those works. But the good news is, is that we have a helper. We have the perfect helper. The only one that can make that life possible. He changes us because he lives in us. And can I just leave you with a statement? Changed people change the world. Changed people changed the world. Otherwise, we wouldn't have anything to meet about here today if those 12 men didn't go out and change the world. But they didn't do it alone. I love how Eugene Peterson in the message says this. Verse 11 through 13 in the message, it summarizes this well. He says, we're being shown. It's it's ongoing. It's action with the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're being shown how to turn our backs on a godless, indulgent life and how to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. This new life is starting right now. And it's wetting our appetite for the glorious day when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, appears. Isn't that good? You see, from the beginning of time, God had a plan to save us all, to live within us and help us produce a posture that will be a a glorious example to the world around us. They will see our lives, that they are truly set apart. And they will also see a godly church that is anxiously awaiting the promise, their hearts turned towards the promise of the return of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's then and only then when we embrace this message that we are truly a beacon of light as Paul was trying to communicate to Titus that if the church is godly and the church is pursuing godliness and is spirit-filled and letting the spirit just move and work in our lives, then we will by default be a beacon of light to the world around us. We just can't stop too early. We have to allow the Holy Spirit. We, we can't just stop and give up. We have to continue. I know that when we preach and when we teach, it, it, we talk about theological issues sometimes, and, and it may seem like it's unattainable. Or, hey, that's good, Andrew. That's great. I'm going to write that down, and we're going to kind of move on. But what does this look like in our lives? Like, what does it really look like? when this happens. And so, uh, as I'm, I'm 43, and I, I'm, I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm noticing that uh, I'm struggling with a little bit of negativity, with cynicism. Is, is that, y'all struggled with any of that? I've noticed that I'm easily on the side of pessimism sometimes, 
this inner thoughts. And what do I do with that? You see, I, I know that negativity, I know that cynicism, I know that's not of the Lord. I know that. And so how does something like this get acted out? Because if this is not practical, if this is not something that we can just use today and move today, then it just stays here in the theological realm. And so God has really been working with me on that. I know that it's not right, but the amazing thing is, is I don't have to sit there and work it out of my closet. Say, I'm going to fight this on my own. <clears throat> I'm going to do this. Everything I have within me, I'm going to do this. <clears throat> yes, it does take effort. But I do it with him. And so as I struggle through this, and as I see negativity and see cynicism creep up, I pray. And I just go to the Lord, and I'm like, God, I, I know that you don't want me to be that way. I, I can't overcome this without you. I, I just can't. I want to be changed, Father. And God, help, help me. Help me be changed in this area, Father. And I, it's, it's not like a light switch goes off. It's not like you just pray and well, I'm done with that. Okay, good. But I'm living this life that God intended me to live with high expectations, spirit-filled, God moving through my life. And so now, in light of that, I have this power. I can overcome this. Not in one sitting, but obviously as I just condition myself with prayer and seeking the Lord and just studying God's word, I, I can come to this and I can overcome it. And may, maybe when I said negativity or sin, maybe you struggle with that. Or maybe it's something else in your own life that you know that hey, this isn't really the godly life that God intends for me. Maybe God is already at work in your life. And I just say, go to the Lord. The posture is, yes, these high expectations, but it's a team. It's the Spirit within us fighting that battle. Oh, that is beautiful. I don't have to carry that. I can rely on Him. There are sins in my own life where I just I look up and I'm going, hey, you know what? I used to struggle with that. And like I don't anymore. And that's the freedom. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. It enables us to do that. We just can't forget the posture that God calls us to. And then once we're there, we fight battles with him. Change people, change the world. I want to lead you in a time of prayer today. Uh, many years ago, I was reading a book, and um, I don't remember the circumstances. It was a non-Christian woman and a Christian woman that was leading. A Christian woman was leading a non-Christian woman in prayer, and she really had no clue how to pray. 
And so she begins her prayer and she looks up, you know, that little prompting. It's like, hey, look up for just a second. And this non-Christian woman was sitting like this. And the lady was kind of awestruck with that position. And it kind of overwhelmed her in that moment. She was like, you know what? How many times do we pray like this? And this lady who has no clue how to pray, she's praying like this. You see, what this is is open hands. You can give when your hands are open. You can submit when your hands are open. So if you'll bow with me and just put your hands in this position as a church. Let's just do this together all around the church. Just, let's just lay our hands before the Lord. God may be stirring in your heart this morning for areas of your life that maybe He is leading you to. Areas of ungodliness, of ways that His Spirit is already at work pruning you, working through you. Let's be obedient to the Lord and give that to Him. And let's stay in a posture before the Lord of open hands.